0: Well, good morning. As Josh Womble said, Josh Green, our pastor, is on a vacation this weekend, and so he is not here. And I am happy to to fill in for him as he is gone. We're gonna begin in Mark 12 this morning, so be turning there if you will. It's page 933 in the Pew Bible if you don't have a Bible with you. And as you're turning to Mark 12, I wanna ask you a question. I want to ask you, what is the most important thing in your life? What is the most important thing to you as a person? That's a difficult question to answer, isn't it? I know for myself, as i thought about that question, there are a lot of things that, that come to mind when I think about what is most important. First and foremost is my wife, Samantha, who's been gone all weekend, and so me and Graham have been uh, surviving. We look forward to her coming home today, but she is very incredibly important to me. But I also think of my son, Graham, and we've had the last couple days just to to be with one another and to hang out and to uh, spend time together, And, and he means a lot to me. He is very important to me. And surely, as you are sitting here, knowing that there's not going to be a a time where you have to answer this question, but surely things are going through your mind that are very important to you. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's parents. Maybe it's best friends. Maybe it's even your job. My job is also important to me. It provides for my wife and for my, my son. There are a lot of things that come to mind as, as most important. And maybe for some of you, you're even thinking, my cell phone. Man, if I leave that at home and I'm, I'm out doing something, I, man, I feel lost. Or maybe it's that latte at Starbucks. I think just about every time I pass a coffee shop that Sam is with me, she's like, hey, let's stop. I need to give me, need to give me a latte. So maybe it's, you know, silly things like that that we think of that are very important. But it's easy for us to kind of start to to think and compile a list of things that are very important. But the question I asked was, what is most important? And if we have to narrow down to one single thing that is the most important, that becomes a whole lot more difficult. We can compile a list all day of things that are very important to us. But when there's one most important thing, what is it? That's a difficult question. Now, we're gonna look at a passage briefly here in Mark 12. And you may be wondering, well, didn't Josh finish chapter 12 last week? Yes, he did. Uh, but we're, we're gonna start here in Mark chapter 12. And, and Jesus is asked this question of what is the most important commandment? And I want us to look at his response because he, he doesn't just give a generic answer. He actually quotes the Old Testament. And so I want us to spend the majority of our time there in the, the passages that Jesus quotes. But look with me. We'll begin at Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now just to, to remind you what's happening here, if you look at the passage Right before this, it's Sadducees who are arguing with Jesus about the resurrection. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to trap him in his words. And so it says in verse 18, they don't believe there is a resurrection, but yet they come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, all right, here's the situation. There's a guy and he's married and he dies. And his brother comes and marries and then he dies. And so his brother comes and marries her and then he dies and on and on. And so the question they ask is, all right, Jesus, whose husband or whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And Jesus responds with maybe one of the best responses in all of the Gospels. It's amazing. Look with me in verse 24. Jesus says, you're wrong because you know not the scriptures or the power of God. Here are Sadducees who make their living on teaching the scriptures, and Jesus says, no, you're wrong because you don't even know what the scriptures say. You don't know the power of God. And so they have tried to test Jesus. We've seen this a lot in chapter 12. And now right after that, here in verse 28, one of the scribes came. He heard this dispute. So he heard this previous conversation that had just happened. And apparently he thought Jesus' answer was good, seeing that he answered them well. And so he asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? It's a good question. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're probably not familiar with how many commandments are found in the Old Testament. I had to look it up. I didn't know it off the top of my head. But a lot of scholars agree that there are 613 commands given in the Old Testament. That's a lot of commands. For, for you young people, if you were to go and spend the night at a friend's house and you walk in the door and they've got a list of 613 rules that you need to follow at this house, you're probably going to be a little overwhelmed. Or maybe if you start a new job and you walk in and, and in the office, there's a, there's a list of 613 rules that you are going to follow a, as an employee here. You'd probably be thinking, wow, that's a lot of rules. But let's be honest, which ones are the most important? Which ones do I actually need to follow to not get fired? And which ones are just kind of like, eh, 613 is a lot. But Jesus doesn't even hesitate in his answer. Look with me at verse 29. Jesus answered and said, the most important is, and here begins the quote, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And he goes on to say the second is like it, and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. But what I want us to do is is to flip over to Deuteronomy chapter six, because this is where this quote comes from. Deuteronomy chapter six, beginning in verse four. This is where we're gonna spend the majority of our time this morning. We're gonna look at this passage that Jesus quotes when he has asked what is the most important commandment. Now, like I said, 613 is a lot of commandments, and Jesus is asked which one of all those commands is most important, and this is what he quotes. So we'll look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're actually going to start in verse 1, and I'll read all the way through down through, through verse 9, so follow along with me. Verse 1 says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now here we begin in verse four, what Jesus quoted. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this is what Jesus says is the most important commandment. Now as we consider this this morning, I have four points that I want to explain to you all or show you all. Four points from this, and then I want us to to think about why this is most important. So first, God is exclusive. The first point from Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine, is that God is exclusive. Now, I get this from verse four. Look with me again. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, you may not think, I've hearing that, that this has to do with the fact that God is exclusive. Where do I get that? I think you all know that the Bible was not originally written in English. All of us are reading a translation this morning. And it's translated from Hebrew. Hebrew was the language that the Old Testament was originally written in. And when you translate things from one language to another, there's not just always an easy one-for-one translation. Uh, We sent a group to Ecuador just uh, last month, beginning of last month, and I learned this very quickly. And uh, when, when I taught a Bible study and the translator was, was translating for me, there was often times where I would use an English word and she would kind of nudge me and be like, uh, do you have another word that would work? I don't, that one doesn't really have any kind of translation. And so there's not always an easy one-for-one translation. And I think that's what we see here because many of your Bibles probably have a footnote on verse four. I checked a couple of my translations at home and most of them did. Look with me, if you do have the footnote, it probably has it at the bottom of the page or in the margin or somewhere. But there's a couple other options for how this could be translated. Now here, my Bible, the ESV says, at the bottom, it says, or the Lord our God is one Lord. That's another way that this could have been translated. Or the Lord, or the Lord is our God, the Lord is One. That's very similar to how they actually translated it, but a little different. And then there's one more. It says, or the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And I think what what translators are trying to convey, they're trying to make sure we understand the meaning is that God is not defending the fact that he is one God that exists in three persons here. Now, maybe we could use this text to to understand that. But I think what, what... Moses wants people to know, and what God has commanded him to teach is that he is the only God. There are no other gods. Now, at this time, there were people all over the world that believed in all kinds of different gods. You go back and read the Exodus, many of the, uh, the 10 plagues that God brought on Egypt were an attack on some of the gods that they worshipped. God was basically mocking the gods that they worshipped, saying, your gods aren't real gods, And so what God is saying here is that he is the only God. Now, this is important. We can gloss over this and not really give it much thought, but this is really important. Now, most of y'all know that that I don't work full-time here at the church. I would love to. I wish I did, but but I don't. And I have another full-time job that I work uh, throughout the week, Monday through Friday. And just this last week, Thursday, actually, Uh, The company that I work for had a day called the Inclusion and Diversity Day. And really, the whole idea of this day is we want everyone in this company, which is a lot of people, we want everyone to feel included because we're one team. We're all working together to accomplish a similar goal. So we are all one team. And so we want everyone to feel included, but at the same time, because we are so diverse... Because we have people from all walks of life, from all places all over the world, we want to celebrate the fact that we are different. We're not all just the same mechanical person who does the same job. We're all different, and that's good, and we like that, and we want to celebrate that. And so uh, my boss sent an email to our team, and she just said, you know, I really want to encourage you all to to enjoy what they got going on. Feel free to, to take part in some of the activities that they got going on. And so me and a couple coworkers, we go down to the, the first floor and they've got all kinds of booths set up. You know, we've got uh, celebrating women over here, African-Americans over here, uh, Hispanics, uh, all kinds of different groups. And I saw one table and they were giving out these coexist bumper stickers. Have y'all seen those? They're pretty popular. You've probably seen them in cars as you're driving. And the coexist is spelled out with religious symbols from different uh, religions. And the point of it is, we want all religions or, or people who believe different things to be able to coexist together. It means we, we live alongside of each other and we get along. We can peacefully coexist with people from all different religions who believe very different things. Now, don't hear me wrong here. We as Christians should be able to coexist with people who believe different things in a peaceful way but not in the way that they're wanting. See, the idea behind this is, all right, everyone believes different things. We've got different religions. They all say different things. Don't ever offend anyone by what you believe is basically what they wanna say. Don't ever tell anyone that they are wrong and that you are right. Now, we as Christians, I hope we're not doing this. I hope your strategy for reaching a Muslim neighbor or a Muslim friend is not saying, hey, My religion's right and yours is wrong. That is not effective. Nobody wants to just be told that what they believe deeply in their heart is wrong. That's probably going to offend them. But we should be able to say in a loving way, the Bible says that there is one God. I know that you don't believe that. You maybe believe in in another God, but but what I believe and what the Bible teaches is that there is only one God. And God is saying there's there's no other way to heaven except through his son, Jesus. We've gotta be able to boldly proclaim that to people because as we are trying to live out our faith and and to evangelize and, and to tell people the good news, we've got to be able to say, there are not multiple paths that all get to the same place. There is one way. Jesus says, No one can come to the Father except through me. God, here in verse four, is claiming exclusivity. There are not a variety of, of options or ways that we can get to God. We have to come to God through the Lord Jesus. Verse four is important. He begins the most important commandment by reminding and establishing that there is only one God and one Lord. God is exclusive. Second, second point I want us to see this morning is that God requires everything. God requires everything. Look with me at verse five. He says, "You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart." with all of your soul and with all of your might. Now, I could begin explaining the differences between heart, soul, and might. And I do think there is distinction there. But what's most important and and what I believe God wants us to see is not so much the importance between the distinction between loving God with our heart and loving God with our soul and loving God with our might, but what he's wanting us to know and wanting us to see is that if we subtract our heart and if we subtract our soul and if we subtract our might, what's left of us? Nothing. Basically, by saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might, the command is, love God with all of you. With every bit of who you are. So we could understand this that, you know, the heart, if we were thinking, well, what might the heart be? Well, usually that refers to the, our, our innermost being. Uh, maybe that's our, our thoughts, our intentions, our motivations, the things that we think, our thought life. It's, it's the most intimate and personal part of ourself, our heart. And God here is saying, love me with all of your heart. All of your innermost being, all of your innermost thoughts, all of your innermost who you are, use that to love God. Or even our, our soul, what, what, what might the soul be? Soul often seems interchangeable with heart as our innermost being, but I, but I think it's even a little bit more broad, Perhaps it would include all of our, our person. You often hear, well, if somebody passes away, you know, we, we laid a soul to rest this week. We're often referring to a person, their whole being. And so perhaps, you know, if we were thinking in terms of these buckets of heart, soul, and might, soul might include our, our actions, things that we actually do. Maybe it begins to include our words that we say to people, our gestures, Ways that we uh, give facial expressions or other expressions. But then we get to might, and we think, well, if if heart includes the innermost being, and if soul includes the whole body, then then what really more could might include that's not already included? Perhaps our, our strength, our talents, our abilities you get the picture, there's, there's a lot of overlap between all three buckets. There's a lot of overlap between the heart and the soul and the heart and the soul and the, the might. Because I don't think the main point here is to say that there's a big distinction between all three of those parts and they, and they all need to be given to God in, in loving him. But what God wants us to know is that we are required, commanded here, to love him with all of who we are. Love him with your thoughts. Love him with your emotions. Love him with your words. Love him with your words and how you speak to one another. Love him with your actions. Love him with your possessions. Love him with your job. See, we could go on all day, and you all could probably name thousands of ways that would be included in how we are to love God, but the point is that God is requiring everything. It's not just a partial devotion to God where we'll give him our Sunday mornings and and maybe our Sunday nights and then sometimes our Wednesday nights. It's that we give him 24-7, 365 All of our time is given to God to love him. All of our emotion is given to God to love him. All of our strength and ability and talents are given to God to love him. It's this idea of totality. We can't think that just giving God little portions of ourself is what satisfies him. God wants all of us, and he requires all of it to love him. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Third, I want us to see that God's command is to be engraved on our heart. God's command is to be engraved on our heart. Look with me at verse six. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. What does it mean? to have something on our heart. I'm gonna tell you a story that may seem like it's not making sense, but I promise you it'll come around and it'll make sense. So right out of high school, I knew that I hated sitting in a classroom. And I knew that if I were to go to college, not only could I not afford it and didn't wanna go into debt, but I didn't wanna sit in class. I didn't wanna sit there and listen to somebody lecture, go home, have homework to do. I was not interested in that. And so my brother before me had joined the Navy and I thought, man, that's a great idea. Start getting a paycheck right away. I'll get to travel a little bit. It's gonna be great. So that's what I did. I joined the Navy right out of high school. And sure enough, I got to travel. First place I went was Chicago for boot camp. That was fun. But in 2007, I found out that my battalion was actually going to Afghanistan. And Afghanistan was a war zone. Still is. And so there's a lot of preparation for going into a war zone. One of the most important things that you carry with you when you go into a war zone is your weapon. Weapon is very important because if you are engaged by the enemy, a weapon is the only chance you have to engage back and maybe eliminate the threat. And so, me being in the Navy and a CB, my primary role was to build things, to do construction. So, I was not uh, an infantryman in the military or in the Marines or anything like that. I was not the first one on the lines to engage the enemy. That was not me. And so, because they knew our primary role was not to engage the enemy, uh, they went, I guess, back in some storehouses and found some M16s that were used in Vietnam. I'm not kidding. And these were the rifles that they gave to us, all right? So the Army and the Marines, they got like all the brand new awesome M4s with all the gadgets on them, lights, lasers, everything. And we're here with these M16s that got nothing on them. It's like the stripper model, all right? It's got no special uh, extras on it. It, It's it, all right? Hopefully it doesn't have rust on it. So that's what they gave us. And so we went to the range and we were practicing, you know, getting our sight ranged in, all that. Uh, But as we were training to go to a war zone, hopefully not having to engage the enemy, they started really cramming something into our brains. And it was this phrase, tap, rack, bang. Tap, rack, bang. So you're probably wondering, what is that? So as they were training us to use these guns and to use these weapons, they said, all right, this is important. Because when you're in the heat of battle, this is not gonna be the first thing that comes to mind unless it's ingrained in you. So if you are, are in engaging with the enemy, you're using your gun, and it stops working, it stops firing, here's what you do. You tap the magazine. Make sure that the spring is not caught on something and it's, it's feeding bullets. You rack the action, and then you pull the trigger. Bang. Tap, rack, bang. And they ingrain this in us over and over and over again. You're eating lunch. Hey, what do you do if your gun stops? Tap, rack, Bang. What do you do if your gun stops? Tap, rack, bang. In the shower. What do you do if your gun stops? Tap, rack, bang. Everywhere, in every aspect of training, they're ingraining this into us so that if it does happen that we're in the situation, our gun's malfunctioning, it's not working, we know what to do. It's second nature. We don't have to stop, pull up the manual and say, all right, well, it says, because you don't have time for all that. In the moment when you need it, it will be there. And in a similar way, That is how the word of God or the commandment of God should be in our heart. In every moment of life, we should be putting this in our hearts. We should be reading it. We should be memorizing it. We should be thinking on it, meditating on it. And as we do, and the more we do, it will slowly but surely be getting ingrained in our hearts so that when tragedy does come, Naturally, is the first thing that comes to mind, that comes out of our mouth, that comes to our thoughts. This is what it means to have the word of God on your heart. Do we realize that there is great importance to having the word of God written on our hearts? See, I think oftentimes we are, we are content with the word of God just being in our Bibles, well, I've I've got my Bible with me, and if I need it, it's there. I heard a story of a preacher one time. He was a young pastor, and he he didn't bother memorizing Scripture. And he said, "You know, any any time that I need to go and, and be at the hospital with someone, and I'll, I'll have my Bible with me, and I'll be sure to bring it with me." And sure enough, a situation arose where he was needed. He didn't have his Bible with him and he found himself there at the hospital. No Bible. He didn't have anything memorized. Didn't have anything to say. And he said, I was so embarrassed. He said, but after that, I made a commitment. I will never be caught in that situation again. And he began to memorize certain verses, certain sections, certain chapters of the Bible so that in that event, he would have the Word of God written on his heart. And that's not just important for pastors, it's important for all of us. There are going to be many times in life where we find ourselves without a Bible and in a situation where a Word from God would be really helpful. Y'all, we can write God's Word on our heart. And when we do, it's there. When the moment comes that we need it, it's there. God knows this. He says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Don't just leave them in your Bible, put them in your heart. Four, we are to teach God's commands diligently. We are to teach God's commands diligently. Look with me at verses seven through nine. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We are to teach The word of God, the commandment of God, diligently. Diligently is a good word. Probably don't hear it used a whole lot. But as I thought about it, I started to think about my lawn. Yesterday I mowed my grass while Graham was napping. And it's kind of late in the summer. I've been mowing it for a while. I've kind of gone through a lazy stretch where I've had the Snyder boys come mow it for me a couple times and usually what happens is in the beginning of spring, when the grass first starts to grow, I get excited about mowing my grass. I'm like, all right, this is the year. I'm going to have the best looking yard on the whole neighborhood. And everyone's going to drive by and look at that and say, yep, yeah, buddy. And so that, it happens. I get out there, crank up the mower. I'm, I'm doing it. You know, I get the weed eater out. I make sure to get every possible weed that's growing stray where it doesn't need to be. And my yard's looking good. But then we kind of get into the hot days of summer and it's really hot out. And to be honest, the grass is growing so fast. If you're not mowing it every other day, it's, it's kind of getting out of control and looking kind of ugly. And so I get to a point midsummer where I'm calling the Snyder boys like, hey, y'all wanna come over and mow my grass this week? Because there's other things I would prefer to do. There's other things that I have to do that are more important to me. Surely mowing my grass becomes less and less important. And yesterday, uh, don't drive by my house because I dropped the deck about as low as it can go to try and get more time between mows, and my grass is looking pretty brown. So, uh, But you get the, the idea that at the beginning, I'm very diligent. I'm out there every few days. I got the weed whacker. I make sure I got plenty of gas for all my, my tools. I got the blower out, blowing off the sidewalk. It's looking good. But surely... Throughout the summer, as it gets hotter and as I've been doing it longer, I get less diligent. Now, my grass still gets mowed one way or the other, but it doesn't quite look as good. It's just kind of done. The edges aren't cleaned up as well. And surely this is many of us in life. We start something, and we come out with blazing fire, and we are all about it. We, we just got saved. We're just starting to read the Bible, understanding the grace that God has shown us in his son Jesus, and we are all about it. We're reading our Bible like crazy, praying like crazy. We're here at everything. And unfortunately, oftentimes we see that there's a slow taper. After we've been doing that for a while, we lose a little bit of steam. We start to be not as diligent about reading our Bible, about praying, about church attendance. Surely you've seen this happen, maybe not just in in spiritual areas, but in other areas of life. Maybe you've started a new job, and you you first get in there, and you're so excited. This is a great job. It pays more than my old job. It's more flexible. I got more time off. This is gonna be great. And so you're in there, guns blazing. you're, You're the best employee. And sure enough, over the course of time, you see that Nobody else is really caring that much, so maybe I don't need to care as much. Maybe I don't need to try as hard. And it just naturally happens that we begin to tail off. But God is saying that we need to be teaching these commands of his diligently. Teaching them diligently to our children. Now look at what he says. He says, teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk, by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, he named four things, sit, walk, lie down, rise. You take those four things away, are we doing anything? I mean, really, if I'm not walking, I'm either sitting or lying down. If I'm not walking or sitting down, I'm probably lying down. If I'm not doing any of those, I'm not doing anything. What you see is that this is covering all situations of life. He says, teach them diligently when you're walking or sitting or lying down or rising up. That covers the whole span of our life. That covers everything we do. The command is for us to teach the word of God to our children in all circumstances. If you're staying at home, eating dinner in, there's an opportunity to teach your children about God. If you're going to the water park, you're having a big day out, there's more opportunities to teach your children about God. you're going on vacation, you're going to see the Grand Canyon, it's an opportunity to teach your children about God. See, this is where, between these two things is where I get the understanding that it's, it's not so much important that we make a distinction between heart, soul, and might, but it's about loving God with all of who we are. And then here, teaching diligently means we're teaching through all circumstances in life. Now, just to make a, a note, whose responsibility is it to teach the young people. It's the parents. This is the way God has created it. This is the way God has made it. It is not the nursery's responsibility to make sure Graham knows and loves God. And when he gets a little bit older, it is not the E-Kids and the McBroom's responsibility for Graham to know and love God. It's my responsibility. It's Samantha's responsibility. It's our responsibility as parents to be teaching the word of God diligently to Graham. We can't think that the church is where our children are gonna find all of their spiritual nourishment, all of their spiritual uh, help. It's gotta come from us. If you think about it, me as a youth pastor I spend between 2 and 3 hours a week with our youth. How many hours a week do the parents spend with them? Hopefully more than 2 to 3. Surely more than 2 to 3. Let's not think that just bringing our kids to church is going to mean they're going to grow up in the faith and love God with all their heart, with all their soul and with all their might. That that responsibility falls on the parents. And it's a very real responsibility. God says to teach his word diligently to your children. He also says in verses eight and nine, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. He's saying, all right, if you have to, put something on your hand so that every time you see it, you're reminded, oh, I need to teach diligently to my children the commands of God. Or put something between your eyes so that as you're wearing it, you're gonna notice it's there and you're gonna be reminded, I need to teach my children diligently the commands of God. And in verse nine, he even says, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Put these commandments where they will be seen. Put these commandments where your children will see them. I remember in my house growing up, my parents had a framed picture of a verse in in Mark. It said, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I remember reading that almost every day that I was in the living room because I would see the picture and I would read it. It was in a nice cursive font. I've never forgotten it. It stuck with me. Not necessarily because my parents did a Bible study on it every, every night, but because it was there and because I saw it and because I read it. Jesus was asked by the scribe out of all 613 commandments, which one is the most important? Jesus said the most important command is to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The most important thing for us as believers, as those who are proclaiming to know Jesus and love him, is for us to love him with all of who we are. Maybe as you sat here this morning and I asked, what is most important to you? Maybe loving God was not even on that list. Maybe that didn't even pop into your mind as far as what is most important. But I want us to see this morning that what Jesus says as the most important command is not something that he made up on the spot. It's a command that he's given to his people long ago to love God with all of who we are. And church, may we be a church that understands that, that gets that. We realize and we know and we're fully committed to the most important thing in all of life is loving God. Church attendance is not more important than loving God. If you're loving God, you'll be here. Reading your Bible every day is not more important than loving God. If you're loving God, you will be reading your Bible. We so easily make things about physical manifestations. And by that, I mean like church membership, reading our Bible and being here whenever the doors are open, whenever church has something going on. Jesus says what's most important is not all these physical activities that we're taking part in, it's actually loving God with all of our person. Is that you this morning? Can you sit here this morning and with a clean conscience and a pure heart say, I really do love God with everything that is in me. If you can't, perhaps, perhaps there's some sin that you need to deal with. Sin that's leading you away from loving God to loving other things. Church, let's not deal with sin lightly. Sin will destroy. God has told us what is most important. Let us never forget that what's most important is to love him. God, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for the greatest commandment. As we think about 613 commands In the Old Testament, that's a lot. But God, we thank you that you have instructed us and taught us that what's most important is that we love the Lord our God, the one Lord, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. Lord, I pray this morning that if there's people here who cannot say that they are loving you with all that they are, that they would would seek you, that they would be looking to you for forgiveness of sins, Lord, and that they would be willing to surrender whatever it is that is preventing them from loving you with all they are, that they would be willing to give that up to know you in a more intimate way. God, we thank you for this morning and we ask your blessing on our day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.